If you had time to read through this little letter of the New Testament today, the letter of Paul to Titus. Titus was one of those young men who accompanied the Apostle Paul in many of his missionary journeys and uh, who had first come to Christ as a, as a Greek in the city of Antioch up in Syria and uh, had uh, since been with uh, Paul on, on, in many of his journeys and uh, at the time this letter was written was uh, on the island of Crete, which has been in the news recently and uh, which many of you know is located in the Mediterranean Sea, just south of Greece. I wanted to use a map tonight so you could locate it a little better, but if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you'll know where Crete is. And uh, this church uh, of Crete was begun, evidently, by the Apostle Paul and Titus, uh, perhaps uh, after he had been imprisoned in his first imprisonment in Rome. You remember the book of Acts closes with the apostle locked up in his own hired house, chained to a Roman guard day and night. And as far as we can tell, he was released from that imprisonment, though there's nothing in the scripture that mentions it. And you recall that he had expressed the desire to go to Spain. And many scholars feel that it was after he had gone to Spain and he'd come back into the, into the, uh, uh, regions of the Mediterranean, of the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, that he and Titus went to the island of Crete and began the church that's there. And evidently, he left, uh, Titus there in Crete, as he tells us in this letter, in order that he might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as Paul had directed him. Here's an interesting little insight into what went on in the early church as the apostle traveled about and sent these young men as apostolic delegates into various places to do a special work for him there. Uh, the background of this letter is very interesting because it brings before us the character of these people who lived in Crete, the Cretans. And uh, in this letter... In one of the most unusual passages in the New Testament, the apostle quotes from one of the ancient writers of his day, one of the secular writers, one of the Greek poets about the Cretans. And in verse 12, if you have the letter open before you, you'll find how he describes these people among whom uh, the uh, young man Titus had to labor. Uh, he says, one of their themselves, a prophet of their own, said... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, obviously, Paul had not taken a course in public relations here in uh, writing a letter like this. But he's obviously writing a private missive to his uh, son in the faith, Titus, and he wants him to understand the formidable nature of the problem that he's undertaken. Here he's dealing with people who are characterized in these three ways. And he, he underscores this by saying, this testimony is true. These are people like this. And as we look at the message of this letter, we can see that uh, these three characteristics of the Cretan people uh, seem to be described in various passages throughout this little letter. They're amplified in certain passages. For instance, uh, the first uh, characteristic was that they were liars. And just a few verses on, in, in verse 15 of the first chapter, you'll notice what Paul says about 
certain ones, he says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the corrupt and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. They're liars. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good deed. Now, this was the kind of society in which uh, the Christian church was living and which was exerting its pressures upon these Christians here in Crete and among whom uh, Titus had to labor. And it was this kind of a character, a national character, that he was up against. And the weapon that he had to change it was the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here were people who were minds, as we're told here, were and consciences were corrupted. They professed to know God, but they deny him with their deeds. And you uh, only have to look around a bit to see how, uh, how many modern examples of this kind of person we have. And then he calls them also evil beasts. That is, they acted like animals. They were like animals in their attitudes one toward another. And you find that amplified in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where he says, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, where the apostle uh, speaks of those. He says, avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels over the law, for they are unprofitable and futile. As for a man who is factious, after admonishing him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is perverted and sinful, he is self-condemned. These words are addressed primarily against those who are Christians, who at least profess to be Christian. And the atmosphere of the island or the, the cities of Crete had, in, had invaded the church here. And they were reflecting the attitudes of the world around. That's always the problem when the church has problems. It's because the, the world is invading the church instead of the church invading the world. When the gospel comes into the world, it's intended to be a disturbing element. It's intended to change society. This is why the church, whenever it's true to its, its, its uh, authentic message, is always against the status quo. The church is a revolutionary body. It always has been. And for this reason, we can be very much in sympathy with some of the revolutionary movements of our own day, which likewise are challenging the status quo. But the difference is, when the church challenges it, it does so with the power of God. And this is something that no other organization or group can possibly exert against the problems of society. And uh, yet it is the greatest power that the world has ever seen to change people. Now, what would you do with people like this, who acted like animals, who uh, snarled at one another, griped at one another, engaged in stupid controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels over the law, and were factious one with another. How would you handle people like that? That's what Titus had to handle. And uh, not only this, but they were characterized as gluttons or lazy uh, gluttons. 
easygoing, pleasure-loving people. And you'll find that amplified in chapter 3, verse 3, where the apostle not only speaks of them, but of himself and of Titus and the way all men are before they become Christians. Here's an amazing description of the world as God sees it from from a a divine point of view. Uh, Paul says in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by men and hating one another. Isn't that a vivid description of life today? Men passing their hours in malice and envy, hating one another, hating men and hating one another. Well, it's this kind of a world into which the apostle sent this young man. And he sent him with the power of the gospel. So that the need of these people is manifested throughout this whole section by uh, uh, two uh, primary things. If you have a pencil... I would suggest that you underline uh, certain phrases that appear again and again throughout this letter. One of them is the phrase sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. You'll find it in verse 9. You'll find it in verse 13, sound in the faith there. You'll find it in verse 2, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. You'll find it in verse 8, sound speech that cannot be censured. And then again in verse 10, uh, where servants are told uh, in everything they may adorn the doctrine. Now, this is the basic need of these people. Paul knew that if you're going to change society, you have to tell them the truth. This is the problem with men and women everywhere. This is why they walk in darkness and act the way they do and snarl and rage at one another and act like animals, tear one another apart and hate one another. It's because they don't understand themselves. They don't understand what's behind life. They don't understand what the world is like. So you have to begin teaching them truth. And uh, in this letter... The first and primary characteristic that, that these Cretans need is that of sound doctrine. Now, with that is also another very basic need that likewise appears several times underlined in this letter. It's the matter of good deeds. You'll find that phrase appearing five times. In verse uh, uh, 16 of chapter 1, it closes with that idea, unfit for any good deed. Then in verse 7 of chapter 2, show yourself in all respects a model of good deeds. And in your teaching, show integrity, gravity, and sound speech. Then again in verse uh, 14 of chapter 2, closes with that idea to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. In chapter 3, verse uh, 8, Be careful to apply themselves to good deeds. And once again, verse 14, let our people learn to apply themselves to good deeds. Now, that's what they needed. Sound doctrine and good deeds. And isn't that what we need today? Isn't this what the church is looking for? What the world is looking for? 
sound doctrine, good, solid teaching, straight from the shoulder, revelations of truth, and good deeds that back them up and manifest the reality of these things. Now, what kind of doctrine in particular? Well, the apostle points out several things that were involved in this. First, they had to be clear about the basis of men's salvation. How do you change human hearts? Only one way known to man. Never been done on any other basis. Uh, today we're striving, as we always have, to try to change people's nature by education, by legislation, and by a change of atmosphere or environment. We think if we clean up the slums and so on, why, this will change people's character and they'll want to be better. And uh, there's nothing wrong with trying to clean up slums. This is perfectly proper, but it will not accomplish that end. As someone has well said, you can bring a pig into the parlor and it won't change the pig, but it certainly changes the parlor. <laughs> and uh, this is the problem here. Now, they needed to know something, uh, the truth about salvation. And in chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, you have that set forth. The apostle says, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He's the only one who can. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. In fact, he goes on to say that. He saved us not because of deeds which we had done, by deeds done by us in righteousness. Everyone is, tries to do some good deeds. When I was a Boy Scout, I learned that you had to do a good deed a day. And sometimes several of us took the same old lady across the street, even though she didn't want to go, <laughs> in order to do a good deed. But good deeds don't save you. And the apostle makes that clear. There's a Savior who's come to mankind, and only the Savior can save. And he goes on to point this out. He has saved us not by deeds which we have done in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. He makes us over from the inside. He doesn't patch us up on the outside. He doesn't give us a, a, a new leaf to live. He doesn't just uh, uh, try to bolster up our, our moral courage a bit and, and get us to try a little harder, but he changes us by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Now, what? how can we do that? Psychology doesn't know how to accomplish that. Absolutely helpless at that kind of a procedure. This is why, you see, the gospel is such a transforming factor in the world. It does what nothing else can do. Nothing approaches it. Nothing remotely resembles it in the world today. And this is why, therefore, the supreme message of the church is declare, to declare and proclaim this great good news that there's a means of being regenerated and renewed in the Holy Spirit which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace and become heirs of the hope of eternal life. 
Now, you know that when the Bible speaks of hope, it doesn't mean just a possibility, a faint possibility. That's the way the world speaks of hope. I hope someday that I'll be rich, or I hope that I'll be healthy, we say. But uh, that's only a possibility. But when the New Testament speaks of hope, it's a certainty. In, in hope of eternal life is a certain thing, because we're resting upon the one who made who gave us eternal life, who came to do so, and we're justified by his grace. Now, there, you see, is the fundamental facts of the gospel, of the Christian faith, in its introductory uh, aspect. And it was this that these Cretans need to learn. Second, they needed to learn uh, some truth about present conduct. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we read again, linked to this very same coming of the gospel, for the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men, that is, all who believe, training us to renounce irreligion or ungodliness, to repudiate it, to use our minds and wills to say no to these things, and worldly passions, and to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world not out of the world, not in the church, but in the world, in the midst of the busyness of life, in the midst of commerce and trade and uh, all the usual enterprise of life, that's where we're to live sober, godly, upright lives. This is truth that they needed to know. Second, they needed, uh, third, they needed to know truth about a future expectation. And he goes on in that same passage, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's perhaps one of the greatest messages that the world needs to hear today. Psychologists are telling us that, that many, many people, especially young people, are suffering from what they call future shock. That's the kind of emotional reaction that sets in when uh, someone contem contemplating the future sees it as hopeless. No, no possibility of accomplishing anything. Living under the shadow of a nuclear holocaust, uh, finding that demands uh, of the government for uh, draft service and other things are so constantly invading life that you can't make any plans. And many young people today are giving up and say, what's the use? And they're suffering from what they call future shock. Now, here's the answer to that. It's waiting our blessed hope. What a phrase to set against that other. Future shock, blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll notice how clearly Jesus is called God in this passage. He, there's one Savior, and it's Jesus Christ, who is the great God, who will appear in glory to set right the things that are wrong in this world. And this is the hope of Christians. We do not hope for the Republican Party to straighten things out, or for the Democratic Party to do so. This is why there's never been anything but a sort of a seesaw between these two political points of view. But no one ever works out the problems, do they? And it's well to remember that in an election year. 
that it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior that will bring an ultimate answer to the struggles and problems of man. Well, these creeds need to learn something about church order. And in the opening chapter, verses 5 through 9, Paul had left word with uh, Titus to appoint elders, whom he later calls bishops, the same thing. Elder refers to the man, bishop to his office. And he gives qualifications. If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of being profligate or insubordinate, for a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of goodness, master of himself, upright, holy, and self-controlled. <laughs> Where do you find that? Anybody want to volunteer to run for this office? Well, Paul expected to find them in Crete. And he expected to find them among those who once had been characterized as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is the change the gospel makes. And he did find them there, because Titus was sent to put them into office to carry on the work of the church. You see how a church becomes sort of a healing community, uh, a therapy group at work in a whole community to introduce into it the the healing virtues of love and light and grace that gradually transform a community. And if a church is not being that, then it's not being a church. But that's what it's sent to do. Finally, these Christians in Crete needed to know something about civic responsibility. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them, says the apostle, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for any honest work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all men. What a contrast that is with some of the activities today in the name of the church. But here's the church that is exhorted to recognize that civic authorities are, in some sense, the minister of God, sent and used by him to maintain law and order. And there should be courtesy and, uh, and obedience and submissiveness to it in every area, wherever the, the law speaks, except in those areas where it definitely challenges a spiritual precept. Only in those areas can a, a Christian justifiably disobey the law. And uh, those are very rare. There's very little of that today. Occasionally we run into it, and especially in other countries perhaps, but there's very little of it in this country here. Now, the last need of these was, as I suggested, good deeds. Good deeds. And... Uh, here, there is some very practical advice given to various age groups. Older men are told to be temperate and serious and sensible, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And then there's a word for older women. They're given a specific task 
to be reverent in behavior and not slanderers or slaves to drink, but they're to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands. That's the task of older women, to teach the young women how to behave themselves and to be good wives and uh, to love their husbands and children, to be sensible, chaste, domestic, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be discredited. Then a word to younger men. Control yourselves. How well the apostle knew these young hotheads, and how easily they can get out of control. But he says, control yourselves. Show yourself in all respects a model of good deeds, And then a word to servants, to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. How practical this letter is. And yet as the apostle gives these practical things, he he is uh, without uh, without, uh, uh, stating this, he is is quietly uh, injecting into this Cretan community a power that would gradually, quietly transform the society around and a group of a nucleus of Christians born there and living according to the attitudes and ideas and according to the power that is mentioned here in this letter would soon become a a vital factor in changing the whole life of this island as it is everywhere. Finally, the apostle closes with some Letter uh, words, personal words of admonition and advice that give us a bit of a, a glimpse into his own life. He says, verse 12 of the last chapter, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Uh, Nicopolis was on the east or the western shore of uh, Greece just across the Adriatic from the Italian boot. And evidently the apostle was writing this letter perhaps from Corinth. And he had sent two of these young men down to uh, Crete to replace uh, uh, Titus there, and then Titus came on. Later we read that Titus went on to Dalmatia up in the northern coast, a little further up the coast. And uh, he had sent two other men who perhaps carried this letter to uh, Titus, uh, whose names were Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos. It's good to see that lawyers became Christians back in those days, too, isn't it? And uh, Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos were on their way, perhaps to Alexandria, which was Apollos's home. And the apostle admonishes Titus to see that they lack nothing. And then he closes the letter as he opens it. He says, let our people learn to apply themselves to good deeds. How did he open the letter? Well, look back for a moment at the beginning. Paul, he says, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. There is the theme of this letter. Truth which matches up with godliness. Sound doctrine and good deeds going hand in hand. And the basis of it, as we've already seen, he goes on to describe as in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised ages ago, literally before the age times began. And on 
uh, Sunday mornings, we've been looking at that promise in Genesis 3.15, where God promised before uh, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden that there would come a redeemer, a deliverer, who would bring, bring life to men. And this is the reference that Paul makes here. And then <clears throat> the method by which it would come at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by command of God, our Savior. That's the way your life was changed, wasn't it? If it's been changed at all, it was by preaching. By hearing this word, this delivering word, set forth. And when, it, when you believed it, you found that you too experienced the washing of regeneration and the subsequent renewing, continuous renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the basis upon which life is intended to be lived. And the only basis upon which we can ever fulfill the picture drawn in this letter, this first century letter, of those who live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world, waiting for the appearing of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. That gives us the message of the book of Titus. We have one more study together in the little book of Philemon before we begin the last section of the New Testament, the great section that focuses on the themes of faith and what faith is, introduced to us by the book of Hebrews. Now, uh, in a moment I'm going to ask us to stand together and we'll be dismissed, but if any would like to stay and see some Slides which Conrad Hopkins and I took on our recent trip down through Central America, South America. We were with Phil and Alice Smith in Cartagena, Colombia, and then in uh, San Jose, Costa Rica, and briefly in Guatemala. Uh, you're invited to stay. These won't take very long, probably about 25 minutes at the longest. And if you'd like to, you're welcome to stay uh, <coughs> or, excuse me, of course, to leave as you like. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we're encouraged again ourselves as we've looked at this letter of Paul's to Titus to adorn the doctrine of God in these days. Titus has long since gone to be with you. Paul has long since gone to be with you. Generation after generation of Christians have lived and died since those days. But the world is still here and the promises are still here. And this is our day, Lord. You've called us to live in this 20th century. Called to be saints. Called to be members of the body of Christ as these early Christians were. The responsibility of witness, of testimony, of, <clears throat> of adorning the doctrine of God falls upon our shoulders today. Grant to us courage and strength and steadfastness and vision and faith that we may manifest these things clearly and truly and certainly in our hour of human history as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.